Hey, it's 99. A quick message up top to the UNFTR audience. Today's show is a departure from our normal format. We still have show notes at the end, but most of the regular features of the show will return next week. Today, Max walks us through 9-11 in three distinct chapters. For new listeners to the show, especially from Pitchfork Economics, please check out our archive for our usual takes. To our loyal UNFTR listeners, welcome back as we examine the legacy of 9-11, the historical coincidence of an event that likely paved the way for our response, and what comes next. It's that time of year, when the seminal event in modern U.S. history gets dissected in a million pieces. Because the effects of 9-11 are lasting, and the events of the day are still burned into our minds, new takes on this day will continue to emerge and our response to it will forever be litigated and analyzed. According to Pew Research, 9-11 sits alone atop the list of the most significant moments in American history for millennials, Gen Xers, boomers, and the silent generation. It's a dubious ranking, of course. You're talking about four generations, Two that witnessed the assassinations of JFK and MLK, the moon landing, and World War II. Three that witnessed the tech revolution, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the massacre at Columbine. The only other event that reaches across each one of these generations is the election of Barack Obama, a stunning achievement. But again, alone at the top is 9-11. It changed us all. Of this, there can be no doubt. How it changed us is up for debate. The causes behind the event, our response to it, the failures and the overwhelming retribution we wrought upon the world at large turned an otherwise isolated moment in time into the most significant world event of our lifetime and there's another argument to be made that it was the most significant event in the world. The what-ifs are almost unimaginable. What if Bill Clinton had assassinated Osama bin Laden when presented with the opportunity? What if our intelligence community warded off the threat in time? What if Al Gore was president and responded with fervor, as he undoubtedly would have done, but not turned it into a multi-decade effort to engage in conflict throughout the world? And following that logic, what if, after exacting our revenge, the multi-trillion dollar budget under a self-proclaimed environmentalist president was poured into climate change initiatives instead of the American war machine? These hypotheticals and suppositions are likely to haunt us beyond our lifetimes. I was living in Manhattan on 9-11-2001. I had actually just left the borough on my way to a business trip when the first plane hit. I have no personal sob story to tell, though I obviously know people who perished that day. There are those who have the right to tell their personal story, and I'm not one of them. But I bring it up because, like most everyone else, I was shook, and I remain shook to this day. I cannot see or hear reporting or footage from that day without breaking down. It was an assault on my home turf, and certainly the turning point in my life when I was awakened politically and determined not to waste a single day not learning, advocating, or just trying to do better. So in tackling 9-11 on this podcast, I want to state clearly up front that I will not engage in any speculation or conspiracy. I have my own thoughts on what transpired and my own feelings that are undoubtedly conflicted and warped by the smell of the towers burning blocks from my apartment the anguish of friends who lost loved ones, and the psychological shock and trauma that comes from such an event. So if I'm being honest with you and myself, my narrow lens on the events of that day is still pretty foggy with tears. It simply never goes away. 
I thought about letting the anniversary pass and foregoing the opportunity to weigh in with some trite analysis or remembrance of that day because it doesn't fit the format of what we're trying to accomplish on this show. But because it plays such an important role in many of the topics and themes that we do cover, I thought it cowardly not to at least try and offer something worthwhile. So I took a step back. And while this technically follows the format of one of our quickies, it will contain none of the tongue-in-cheek irreverence or profanity. It will be light on what I view as tragedy porn, though I will make sparing use of certain clips that help guide the narrative. No pithy introduction, outtakes, funny clips, or absurd sketches. Just a story of this date, told in three parts and beginning nearly 50 years ago, to try and make sense of not just the day, but of ourselves. To try and determine what this date and this event means for us along a spectrum and what it pretends for the United States and the world today on 9-11-2021. 20 years from when the world stopped turning and 48 years from when our story begins. Chapter 1, September 11th, 1973. Weaponizing Espionage. Our story begins not in America, but in Chile, far from the purported interests of our national defense in a country separated by its neighbors by the Grand Andes Mountains and the Atacama Desert. The nation of Chile hugs the western coastline of South America from Peru to the Cape Horn. Like every country on the continent, it battled for independence at times from the Spanish colonial superpower and at times from its own neighbors. While a trading partner of the United States with its mineral interests, in particular copper deposits, it previously enjoyed a position of relative isolation from North American power struggles. All of that changed with the election of a moderate socialist named Salvador Allende in 1970. Ever fearful of the encroaching influence of communism, Allende's election came as a surprise to the Nixon administration and would set Chile on a collision course with a new form of American imperialism. Salvador Allende was born to a middle-class family, studied medicine, served in the volunteer army, and voraciously consumed the works of Marx, Lenin, and Trotsky during his youth. As an activist later in life, he would be imprisoned, help form coalition between moderate and leftist political groups, and eventually enter politics as a moderate socialist. He was a rather popular figure in the country, though the elites suspected he harbored radical ideas, especially given his connection and admiration for the revolution in Cuba. But Allende was indeed a true moderate, preferring always to guide his country towards socialism via a constitutional and electoral path rather than revolution. Allende was a fixture in politics for decades, but it wasn't until the election in 1970 that he was awarded the presidency by a thin margin over more established candidates. Rumors swirled that Allende's campaign was financed by the Cubans and the Russian Communist Party, though evidence showed that while money did funnel in from these sources, Allende's party was not the beneficiary. President Richard Nixon, furious that domestic intelligence did not foresee this victory, established a secret mission, codenamed Project Track 1, to bribe Chilean cabinet members to not ratify the election, causing the sitting president to hopefully step down and forcing a new election this time with the backing, money, and influence of the Americans who weren't about to let another Castro scenario in their perceived sphere of influence. While this effort failed, Nixon called in war criminal Henry Kissinger to create Project Track 2, designed to destabilize the nation and force a military coup. The U.S. plotted with right-wing elements of Chile to kidnap the general loyal to Allende's constitutional and free election, not the man himself. 
The attempted kidnapping failed when the general didn't exactly go quietly along with the plot and engaged in a shootout with his would-be assailants. With both soft plots foiled and no way to outwardly engage the U.S. in yet another quagmire, especially one that literally had no explanation other than we didn't like the results of the free election in another country, Nixon turned up the economic heat and instigated a disinformation campaign to stoke communist fears and squeeze the Chilean people. The strategy was simple. Apply a tourniquet to the economy and blame communism. Allende was far from a revolutionary or even a Marxist, for that matter. He was a committed socialist who sought to nationalize key elements of the economy, increase wages for all, and lift the rural parts of the country out of poverty with robust social welfare programs. Even his friend and ally, Fidel Castro, believed that Allende was too peaceful and that force would be needed to institute all of the necessary changes to revolutionize the Chilean economy and society. But that was decidedly not Allende's style. By all accounts, he was a kind, loyal, and patient man who sought to transform Chilean society peacefully. At first, everything appeared to be going Allende's way. But things would soon change for the worse in Chile, and Allende's grip would begin to loosen as social unrest spiraled out of control. There were people inside the U.S. government pressing Kissinger not to take this course, and he uh, completely shunted them aside, pushed Nixon forward to as aggressive but covert a policy as, as possible to make Allende fail, to destabilize Allende's ability to govern, to create what Kissinger called a coup climate. Despite clear gains in the first year of his administration, external factors, along with the likelihood that Allende did too much too soon, began to unravel the socialists' plans. Remember from our Milton Friedman episode that the Nixon administration's sudden maneuver to end the Bretton Woods Agreement, unstable relations with OPEC, and the end cycle of expansion post-World War II was shaking up the global economic order. In Chile, Allende was partially the victim of terrible timing as a result of these circumstances combined with forceful U.S. sanctions. And as his friend Fidel Castro said, Allende wasn't the type to meet adversity with force. Month after month, the situation worsened in Chile, and Allende found himself isolated with increasing debts, spiraling inflation, and the United States holding a gun to the head of anyone who might offer assistance to the troubled Chilean economy. Throughout the summer of 1973, the situation deteriorated even further and the Chilean people were taking to the streets. The Nixon administration, sensing its moment had arrived, aided a clandestine mission to aid a military coup to oust Allende and install a new regime under General Augusto Pinochet. On September 11, 1973, the moment of truth finally arrived for Allende. The CIA, with foreign military support, orchestrated the final deadly blow to the Allende administration and changed the course of Chilean history forever. Allende was the world's first democratically elected Marxist. On September 11, 1973, his dead body was pulled out from the National Palace during a U.S.-backed military coup that helped define the Cold War. With bombs raining down on the palace, witnesses claimed that Allende shot himself with an AK-47 he'd received from Fidel Castro. But years of military rule only fueled suspicions that he had been executed. As the presidential palace was fired upon and Pinochet took control of the country, a new era of American imperialism had officially begun. From inside the palace, Allende refused to leave true to his promise not to surrender the government for which the ordinary people of Chile 
had voted. He broadcast this last message, then he shot himself. Workers, I have faith in Chile and its destiny. Go forward knowing that sooner rather than later, avenues will be open along which free men will walk to build a better society. Long live Chile, the people, and the workers. Apart from the historical coincidence of date, you might be wondering if there's really a connection here and a reason to explore at this moment in time. For me, the historical coincidence is just icing on the cake. I truly believe 9-11-1973 marks a seismic shift in U.S. foreign policy and how we would build a new kind of covert war machine, a war machine that needs to constantly feed. So why this moment, as opposed to the thousands of other aggressive actions perpetrated by the U.S. government? Because it marked the moment that we began to weaponize our clandestine affairs and engage in violent espionage and economic terror. It was the end of Vietnam. Conscription was over. Americans knew we lost both Korea and Vietnam, even if that wasn't the official line. Economic trouble was brewing and Americans no longer had tolerance for war, let alone losing wars. The Cold War was still in full swing and our surveillance apparatus was taking root. There was still trust in the government, remember that Nixon was still somewhat popular at the time, but Watergate was gaining momentum and Nixon could ill afford to embroil us in another war. So to be clear, the coup that took Allende's life and installed General Augusto Pinochet to power was less of a U.S.-backed and orchestrated affair and more of a U.S.-blessed affair. Declassified documents clearly demonstrate U.S. involvement in planning, support, and intelligence, but we didn't attack or directly commit murder. That was the tragically brilliant part of the equation that would inform every administration from Nixon forward. Under Kissinger, the United States had devised a new model, a cleaner one. Less blood, more money. More brains than brawn. A mixture of classic propaganda, economic sanctions, and tacit military planning and support. Mix them together, keep blowing on the embers, and eventually things will go up in flames. Despite running a ruthless regime, Pinochet was eventually sidelined by his own democratic reforms and new governments were elected in the 1980s. Of course, he was able to orchestrate his own security by retaining a military role and then eventually moving to the Senate. Despite being brought up on international charges and being tried at home as an old man, Pinochet died in his 90s without ever being fully convicted of brutal crimes against humanity. The orchestrated murder of government officials during the coup, the disappearance and torture of dissidents thereafter, the construction of concentration camps for his enemies, despite all of it, Pinochet would live a full life unmolested by authority and his past. And some in Chile still view him in a favorable light, something we might have had difficulty understanding prior to electing our own orange strongman. One of the reasons for his popularity is another inflection point that we've covered on UNFTR, and that's the legacy of Milton Friedman. As I pointed out in the Friedman episode, his personal involvement in Chilean economics has been oversold over the years, his version, as you'll hear now, is actually the real version. I never advised Pinochet. I never supported Pinochet. We'll throw that one away. Uh, uh, but, but, hold on. No, I don't want to evade the question. All right. Chile was a case in which a military regime 
headed by Pinochet, was willing to switch the organization of the economy from a top-down to a bottom-up performance. And in that process, a group of people who had been trained at the University of Chicago in the Department of Economics, who came to be called the Chicago Boys, played a major role in designing and implementing the economic reforms. Remember, as I took great pains to point out, Milton Friedman wasn't a liar or even a monster. If anything, he was a purist and a nerd. Our point has been that there is an inherent danger in this purity and his purity that fails to consider real-world issues and realities that derail the free market dogma that he promoted his entire career. Pinochet, under the guidance of the so-called Chicago Boys, did implement a number of free market changes that made Chile a viable trading partner of the U.S. and other countries and opened up the capital markets to outside investment. Now, the dark side of the free market and other deregulatory efforts led to the inevitable creation of rampant inequality and class struggles. Like most Chicago school experiments, this is always the conclusion. Free markets, deregulation, and expansive trade made the rich richer and the poor poorer. It's always the same. Unemployment and inequality are higher in Chile than the majority of OECD nations, Billionaire wealth is equal to 25% of the country's GDP, and social welfare programs are severely underfunded. Uncle Milton's most famous line is, there's no free lunch. With decades of his free market experiments in the rear view, a more appropriate line would now be, there is no free market. Greed always wins and perverts the system. But the lesson for our purposes is that 9-11-1973 paved the way for a new type of economic and covert warfare that helped shape U.S. policy for decades to come. Subsequent U.S. administrations would learn from this very example and usher in a new era of dirty wars, propaganda campaigns, and economic warfare that would upend countries all over the world without ever having to declare conventional war. But as our influence grew, the mechanisms of economic warfare matured, and the theories of the Chicago School infiltrated the nations of the world, our military didn't exactly stand idle. The U.S. military would slowly build over the coming decades, constantly in search of the next threat, clearing the way for economic policy wonks to exert their influence and waiting for its moment in the sun. 28 years to the day, this time would come in the most unimaginable way. Chapter 2, September 11th, 2001. The Crescendo. It's true when they say that 9-11-2001 was picture perfect in New York City. As one of the local newscasters infamously said, it's almost too quiet. And then... This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers... A huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way! If not for the abundance of footage from that day, it would be a blur. Instead, every second of every minute is now emblazoned in our minds. First, one tower, then the other. The Pentagon and other missing flights. The sudden realization that this wasn't a fluke. It was coordinated. It was war. We were under attack. Few Americans had ever heard of Al-Qaeda. Most would have struggled to identify Afghanistan on a map or even refer to the Taliban by name. But we were sucked in, 
glued to the television and ready to consume whatever we were told as gospel, and we were ready to fight. The whole world would hear us, and so would those responsible, our president said from atop the rubble in lower Manhattan. American flags were ubiquitous. We were awake, we were vigilant, resilient, and determined. For centuries, wars were affairs of nations. Governments waged war on one another in the name of nationalism, religion, or unrestrained imperialism. Borders were established and re-established. Conflicts and enmity could last centuries, but every war had a beginning and an end. And there were rules. In September 2001, America's understanding of war was forever changed. Our foe was now amorphous. Osama bin Laden had no standing army, no country, no borders to protect, and no assets to be taken. There were no sanctions to levy or threats that really mattered. America was at war with an idea. America was being terrorized. The Bush administration, unfit on so many levels to direct the social and economic aspects of governance, was somehow uniquely suited to administer a punishing response to Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and all those who would defy America in our pursuit of justice. Judgment Day would be leveled upon our enemies with a medieval ferocity married with modern precision. Of this, we were sure. And not only were we kept abreast of our military response with clarity and immediacy, but we were told how to feel. It was okay to be angry, for ours was a shared tragedy. Our sadness was collective, and our resolve singular. One nation under God. In the days immediately following the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, Congress gave the Bush administration unprecedented authority to wage full-scale war on terror. On September 14, 2001, Congress passed the Authorization for Use of Military Force, AUMF allowing the executive branch to leverage all available military assets to bring to justice combatants deemed responsible or materially supportive of forces associated with the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Recall that only Congresswoman Barbara Lee from California voted against this measure in Congress. Here is the AUMF in general, quote, that the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. End quote. So it was under this authority that the United States government declared war first in Afghanistan and then Iraq shortly thereafter. It's under this authority as well that the executive branch has carried out everything from covert assassinations to drone strikes in countries such as Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. It's under this authority that we continued to bomb countries throughout the world without permission or hesitation. A self-granted authority, illegal in the eyes of any and every international body, though few developed nations would dare question us. In so many ways, this authorization simply brought our actions out from behind the curtain, though. Subsequent updates to this authority changed in seemingly subtle but powerful ways. Gradually, the language related to 9-11 disappeared, and the authorization broadened to anyone suspected of aiding terrorism anywhere, period. Reprint a portion of a terrorist manifesto, even if it's in a journalism piece? your fair game. Inspire terrorist actions by preaching on a street corner somewhere thousands of miles from the homeland? Your fair game. 
an American citizen joining a movement abroad? Fair game. The year following the coup in Chile, a Senate Select Committee to Study Government Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, known as the Church Committee, after Democratic Senator Frank Church of Idaho, offered a look inside the inner workings of our clandestine world. Among the findings, the CIA had varying roles in coups and assassination plots in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, and Vietnam, and of course, Chile. In the case of the Congo, the committee discovered the agency had actually plotted to kill its newly elected prime minister, Patrice Lumumba. And although they didn't ultimately do the deed, the Belgians did, they supplied the weapons and the money to help it along, originally planning to poison the leader. The committee also shed light on just how high up the chain of command these orders came, revealing a concept called plausible deniability, meaning the president and other officials with authority to pull the trigger on such activities could know without knowing about them and escape blame. The Church Committee also discovered widespread domestic surveillance operations by the CIA, including the mass photographing and or opening and resealing of citizens' mail without even the U.S. Postal Service's knowledge. Our intelligence agencies would meddle in the Middle East, Southeast Asia, South and Central America, anywhere we saw fit to frustrate a nation-state that didn't play by our rules. Reagan carried out covert affairs all throughout his term particularly in the Southern Hemisphere. George H.W. Bush brought us into the Gulf War. Clinton went into Bosnia and Somalia. And all of this occurred before 9-11-2001. You see, this behavior was already the way of the U.S., but it was done in secret. The Church Committee exposed our clandestine ways, yet nothing changed. Post 9-11, we didn't just invent widespread surveillance and begin overthrowing nations. We just brought these programs into the light and gave them all of the necessary funding to grow into an autonomous being, a war machine the likes of which the world has never seen. Intercept co-founder, investigative reporter, author, and host of Intercepted, Jeremy Scahill, produced two incredibly detailed and horrifying books on the post-9-11 buildup of private mercenary armies and the massive coordinated surveillance state. In Blackwater and Dirty Wars, Scahill details the crucial building blocks of secret authority, backroom deals with shady figures like Eric Prince, covert ops and cover-ups in more countries than one can count. The loss of civil liberties at home, combined with a war on whistleblowers and journalists during the Obama years, chilled speech to a terrifying degree and created a dearth of credible foreign affairs reporting. Our 9-11 didn't just usher in the war on terror. It ushered in a wave of domestic surveillance and crushing violations to our civil liberties. The AUMF, the NDAA, and all subsequent iterations of it, the Patriot Act, the war on whistleblowers and journalists, the growing distrust in our nation's media was state-sanctioned. See, the Obama administration in particular attacked the most credible of news sources and chilled speech in a way even Nixon couldn't have imagined. But he got away with it because he was the darling of the center. After all, his election was the second most important event to every living generation, right? This provided a unique cover to the most coordinated attack on American journalism. It's little wonder Donald Trump was able to build on this distrust of the media. The news might really not be fake, but it's certainly watered down. The only information we seemed able to trust as a nation was anything related to the war on terror. On this, there was consensus. Chris Hedges was fired from the Times for questioning the war in Iraq. Phil Donahue was excommunicated from television for doing the same. 
If a newscaster refused to wear a flag pin, they were shunned and demoted. Only one narrative related to terrorism was allowed to persist even though since 9-11, the largest known group of terrorists in the United States that have committed more acts of aggression, lone wolf and coordinated attacks on U.S. soil, are white nationalists. Now, I'm confident that there are pockets and cells of terrorist groups around the world that, given the opportunity and if they had the funding and wherewithal, would do everything in their power to crush the United States. So the point is not to infer that we live in a world without discernible threats. To the contrary, our behavior has been so awful that I'm confident these threats are ever-present and may be growing. Now, the point is to demonstrate that we gave the military-industrial complex an inch and they took the world. What started as an assault on our homeland has turned into a license to print money and defense contracts, run roughshod over all international norms and laws, and silence critics of such behavior domestically. The war on terror turned the United States into the biggest terrorism organization on the planet. Chapter 3, September 11th, 2021. What happens now? This is being released on 9-11-2021, 20 years from the event that four generations list as the most important event of their lifetimes, 48 years from the moment we figured out how to coalesce our economic, military, and covert strengths into a formula that would change the balance of power in the world forever. And it's the first 9-11 in my lifetime that we have not, technically, been engaged in a defined conflict. Oh, I know that there are covert operations happening abroad. I know the government surveillance apparatus is hard at work as always, and that the military stands at the ready to provide air support in Syria, launch targeted drone strikes in Somalia, and we're still strangling the economies of several nations around the world. But for practical purposes, right now, this moment is the first moment in decades that we are technically, and by our own work standards, in peacetime. Peace. It's almost an impossible concept. Peace. What does that even mean? Since World War II, we've been the most belligerent and bellicose nation on Earth. But since Biden clumsily ripped off the Band-Aid from our longest engagement in the final surge of a global pandemic and on the heels of the turbulent and chaotic Trump years, we find ourselves in a moment of silence. In this silence, perhaps now we can contemplate our future and our place in the world. The Tony Blinkens of the administration will try to divert our attention to China, and the neocons in D.C. will attempt to manufacture crises somewhere, anywhere, to remind us of our precious freedoms. Will we see it coming? Will our media take this time to reflect on their role in our aggression for the past 70 years? Will we have an honest dialogue about how these past chapters have defined us as a nation for longer than anyone can remember? I don't know. But there's one actor who hasn't been silent of late. A force bigger than all of us that is sending us loud and violent messages with increasing frequency. And that's Mother Nature. Not to get too hippy-dippy on everyone, but there's a larger battle that must be waged, and it's one that we are wholly unprepared for. Or are we? As you know from our most recent episodes, I'm obsessed with the fact that no one seems to be addressing the fact that 20 years ago on this day, the military budget was $300 billion and that today it's $750 billion a year and projected to steadily grow for the next 10 years. 
What exactly are we prepared for? Where will this money go? One theory is that we are indeed preparing for climate change, but not in the way that one might hope or expect. In the coming months, we're going to look at the impact of economics and climate change. We're going to talk about our colonialist tendencies, the future of the global economy, and what mass migration will mean. We'll address how the Pentagon has literally been modeling all of these factors since the early 90s, and how long ago it made the long bet that much of the planet is beyond saving. And we'll posit the theory that perhaps this is what we're saving for. That this is the war they've been preparing for all along. A war of survival against the elements, and one that is, as usual, of our own doing and by our own hands. This is the next chapter. The aftermath. What comes next depends upon you, me, all of us, if we can only focus on what matters in this ever-so-brief moment of silence. Go forward knowing that sooner, rather than later, avenues will be open along which free men will walk to build a better society. These final words uttered by Salvador Allende, who refused to yield to the coup and instead determined that he would die for the plight of the poor and working class of Chile, still resonate today. 48 years later. What remains to be answered is whether we as a nation are prepared to honestly reflect in this brief silence and chart a path forward to a more equitable future that honors the dead, protects the living, and preserves our mother. So as we leave one another right now, and before we come back together in a week, take the next few minutes in silence and get centered and reflect because there's a great deal of work ahead as we co-author the next chapter. Here endeth the lesson. Here we begin again. Okay, and fuckers, here we are. It's just me and 99, sitting quietly in the studio, thinking about what uh, was just said. Thank you for indulging us in this little format change. It's one of those things where there's so much anger and antipathy in the, in the country right now. There's so many things that seem to be going very, very wrong, and they are. And I don't want to minimize any of those, but it, it is a moment to just sort of sit back and reflect on what happened the life that we've kind of crafted for ourselves, because there's so much about who we think we are as a nation that is belied by the facts, the evidence, and our actions. So hopefully this interlude, this brief reflection on this important day uh, to so many of us can kind of carry us through to talk about sort of the next phase of this show and the next phase of American empire. Not that they're on the same level, of course, although we like to think so. Anyway, how you doing, 99? I'm good. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> yeah. I know it's it's a little much to try and come back for that and have some ha-has during show notes, but uh, you know. Yeah. 
it is what it is. We have the unfuckers to keep us going. Unfuckers and subfuckers and unkanuckers, down underfuckers have been very, very noisy of late. And I don't know if you saw this, but we recently started trending in the UK, which was kind of mm. pretty cool. So yeah, uh, the other thing that happened uh, after show notes last week is we kind of put a call out for more subfuckers, for more people to join join us over at Substack, which as we always say, is free. We don't charge for Substack membership because we don't want to gate any content. We're trying to figure out different ways to monetize the show and create avenues of support. But Substack is really important to us because it helps us stay connected, uh, helps us send messages out to our audience. And a lot of you signed up, actually. We, I think we had our biggest sign-up period in a long time. So thank you for coming aboard there, and we will try to stay in touch with you. Now, as for show notes this week, we had a number of coffee donations, which was very kind. Scott L. took out a membership, said, best of the left sent me. You and Bo of the fifth column are my must listen. So I actually started listening to Bo of the fifth column. I'm not totally into it yet, but I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a try because Scott L. said so. There you go. Rhonda K. bought us a coffee and said, count me in as one of the people looking forward to the vegan episode. You got it. Propax sent us five coffees. The California governor's past, present, and future segment was hilarious and Propax laughed out loud. Well, that's very cool. Appreciate that. I thought it was a lot of fun. Although 99 said that my uh, my Arnold accent kept dipping into some weird Russian yeah. kind of treatment. It's fun to dissect your, your accents because the Bernie and the Arnold, they're very close. It's just a thin wall the millionaires between. and billionaires. Right there. Millionaires <laughs> and billionaires. It is very, very close. Yeah. <laughs> Tricushin, hey, Trick. What's up, Trick? Tricushin bought three more coffees. Tricushin is just always sending support. I, I, I don't know what to say. Just thank you. She said, as a woman working in tech who was terrified to take maternity leave last year, I think both maternity leave and tech bro culture are a good fit episode. Yeah, I dig that. You got a Trick. On the board. Amy sent us two coffees, said, been listening again to UNFTR's first season. We haven't really broken them out into seasons, but I like that. I like that because actually, maybe we could take a break at some point. <laughs> nah, just keep going. Listening again to the first season, kind of missed the show opening from that season. You all are better than peanut butter pie and a hot cup of tea. Stay awesome. Peanut butter pie. I've never had peanut butter pie. Have you? No. Not Amy, is that really a thing? Peanut butter pie. I have nothing else to say about that. No, I'm just thinking about what it would be. Like, is it a pie and is it a Reese's? (laughs) (laughs) Basically. Amy just sitting there, just gorging on a giant Reese's peanut butter cup. (laughs) I support you, Amy. Okay. Kellyander Fives. No, Kellyander Fives' husband is here. Wow. Bought five coffees. Thought you might enjoy some peak caffeination. Love your podcast and your coffee. Oh, that's very, very cool and kind. On Facebook, Andrew I said, great episode, Californication. Darlene Mickey said, please create a podcast about a woman's right to choose. So one of my um, weaknesses intellectually is uh, the Supreme Court. Going to be perfectly honest here. So I am embarking on a very long journey to try and I don't want to do, as you know, I don't want to just say a woman has a right to choose because it's a, there's a reason that it's like the number one hot button issue amongst the social issues in this country. So I do want to examine it in a non-Freakonomics sort of way. That's a, a callback to what made Freakonomics famous. But I want to do it right, darling Mickey. So I'm going to need a lot of time 
forgive me for that. I know that there's a sense of urgency around this movement. I don't think that this movement needs uh, my voice in particular. There's plenty of much, much better advocacy out there. Actually, I'll give a shout out to Gaslit Nation. We could put that into pod love. Gaslit Nation is doing some great work on this. The two hosts of that are far more informed than I will ever be. And uh, so there's that for this moment. But darling Mickey, I promise you I will get on it and um, keep learning. On Twitter, Zareed89 said, I just wanted to say that I ordered a pack of coffee and this is some of the best unfucking coffee I've ever had full stop. Love that. Spencer RDS, been listening to UNFTR pod and now I have, I love Manny faces, love, love Manny faces stuck in my head. Also FMF. Knoxman2010, UNFTR pod, damn fine coffee. Oof. Thank you. Wrote on Rick, another excellent fucking podcast. Really love the old dude from New York accents. Hey, thanks, Wrote on Rick. Much appreciated. Embustama. Hey, Embusto. Interesting take on Gavin. First podcast where I actually feel like I studied for it. Great point on Diane Feinstein. Uh, hashtag California recall election. Thanks for checking in, Embusto. Wild Eye Bob. The R fuckers in Cali are trying to hit their target. Give you an FTR pod a listen and why it matters to all of us. Wild Eye Bob and Nettie, just the biggest uh, support system that we have. Taylor Grin didn't add us in this tweet, but it did come up on our discovery, uh, said, I found, quote, trusting Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, quote, to be a pretty good benchmark for determining when a liberal is more concerned about contrarianism than objectivity. Cough, <laughs> unfucking the republic. Cough behind the bastards. Ew. All right. So let's have a let's have a quick chat shall we, about uh, the left in general, about hero worship and journalism. I'm terrified of Glenn Greenwald. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, he's so angry. He's so mean. Uh, I, I definitely don't want to be on his bad side. Uh, but I loved, I really, really loved what I would consider the peak of his writing during you know all of the NSA reporting. I think he did a lot of really good follow-up stuff at The Intercept. I am not following him as closely now that he has left and he's on his own and he's over at Substack. I know that he and Matt Taibbi have been pretty close collaborators, even though Matt Taibbi had a very brief appearance over at The Intercept and then continued out on his own. And both of them have been really effective at tweaking the left, the right, the center, pretty much anybody. So I try to look at them as objectively as possible. I don't really read their opinion pieces. I don't follow them on Twitter closely. I'm not looking at what they, you know, certainly not at the fights that they engage in or any of the uh, the punditry when they're a box on a screen on some news channel. But they're still both producing some very credible writing. I wouldn't call it journalism at this point. And I'm not saying it's it's not journalism. It's just a lot of it is more opinion-based writing. And I think that they make they both make incredible points. And I don't agree with all of them. So I'm more of a Taibi person than a Greenwald person anyway, uh, even though I know he's uh, provoking a lot of pretty tough emotions on both sides. I'm going to stand by the fact that I admire his brain and his approach and the fact that he's forced a lot of really great conversations. Glenn, at this point, I feel like is just poking everybody in the eye. And again, I'm terrified of him. So going to move on from that. On Instagram, Starlotti gave us a love. And then Hope said, your education stays with me throughout my life. And sent a picture, oh, of her UNFTR sticker on her laptop. That is so cool. Andrew said, Uncanucker here by way of Canada land. Hey, welcome, Andrew. Fuck Milton Friedman. Fuck Mitch McConnell. And fuck Greg Abbott. Well, thanks. Lauren shared the Californication episode and said, great episode from UNFTR pod, vote no on the recall. And Jason shared a photo of the UNFTR sticker on his car. Boom. 
Now, on the emails. Alex T. Yo, Max, baby. G'day from Australia again. TLDR, you're a sick cunt. Keep up the good work. I can't keep going with it. I'm he just, did so ask bad. you in the email to not do it anymore. <laughs> I did not paste that part. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. I like enabling you. Oh, you're so, you're so bad to me. <laughs> My impulse is to say F.A. Fuck America, but I feel like I might experience a tough crowd response. Yeah, no doubt. So just for you, FMF, and I want to say FRM, but saying fuck Rupert Murdoch makes me feel sick. He looks like a saggy 90-year-old ball sack fucked by a Sharpay and spent too much time in the solarium. <laughs> We, I just want to move to Australia at this point. Why is everybody there so fucking funny? Because they have to cope with the crippling fear of giant spiders. That's really... What's, and birds. Yeah. They have those birds that like, if you're walking, they just swoop down and like peck you on the head. Like pterodactyls? Kind of. They probably still have dinosaurs, right? Yeah. Australian dinosaurs. Birds. Mm. Ugne from Lithuania said... I'm in the last year of my undergraduate degree, during which I need to complete a dissertation. I am super interested in environmental economics and want to write my paper in this arena. Recently, I started reading about MMT and the Green New Deal. By sheer luck, I discovered your podcast on Spotify and became a huge fan. I absolutely love the episode on MMT. Perhaps you could offer advice on narrowing the topic of MMT, suggested further reading on the matter, and uh, it would be ideal for me to work with some data, maybe run a regression. Okay. So first thing I would recommend is if you have not, because I assume that from that episode and from other reading, you've taken a look at what Stephanie Kelton has done. She's published a number of other papers as well. I think she's out of the university at Stony Brook. And, but also you have to look at Thomas Piketty and Piketty actually has done a number of those type of analyses and has a lot deeper research, you know, and, and economic data to point to. And really, I, I think he went back 250 years in his last two treatises. Really, really deep stuff. But if this is what you're studying, then you'll probably get it. But if you were going to run data independently, I would suggest Japan. There you go. Todd L., how about an episode on Western politics and the Sagebrush Rebellion? Todd L., I was not familiar, and now I am, thanks to you, and I absolutely love this topic. Obese Andy said, loved Californication. The sketch was sublime. Andrew D., said, oh, wanted to send an Apple podcast review, but it probably won't be posted. That's because Andrew D says, this is the best fucking podcast. It was sent from best of the left. Unfucking believable. You've changed my life or at least my weekly podcast listening habits. Thanks for that, Andrew D. That's very cool. Got, now here you're writing Australian voice, Cameron. Who wrote Australian voice? Him or yeah. me? No, him? him. Oh. He's telling so. you who the authentic Australian Austra- voice oh, is. Oh, not like prompting me to do an Australian <laughs> no. voice. Mm. Cameron Riley, the host of The Bullshit Filter and a bunch of history podcasts. Very cool. All right, let's get on it. Adam S. said, hey, Max, love the show. My brothers introduced me to this, and I'm happy to say you actually brought me around on a few topics with your extremely well-reasoned writing. Well, that's really, really cool. Adam suggested that we check out um, opening arguments. They also had a really good take on what would happen if Gavin Newsom just resigns. I don't think that that is obviously going to happen, but had he done that, the uh, recall election would have been null and void, and then the lieutenant governor would indeed have finished out Newsom's term. Very interesting. No way handsome Gavin was going to do that. Dan G, I'm learning so much, and I look forward to your takedown of Ben Shapiro. Well, that is not going to happen. There's another guy who is just, he's terrifying, and his audience is uh, uh, about a billion. He's a billion people following him, so the last thing I'm going to do is uh, provoke Ben Shapiro. I don't know. I think you promised it in the AOC quickie. I did not. You did. You said mm, in due time, Manny. In due time. I did say in due time. Now I remember saying in due time. 
We'd have to be so bulletproof and big. We'd have to have so many unfuckers behind us because it would be like that battle in Braveheart where we just like all gather on a field and just run into each other with pitchforks and knives and, and bats and clubs. And I, I obviously I give the edge to unfuckers at that point, but there's just not enough of us. He'd be like, the, he he'd he's be like, be like the king. don't listen to this podcast. Unfucking the Republic. It's yeah, he slander. Might. He might. And? and? And then and then we would be inundated with uh, hate and people just shutting us down left and right and nobody would hear our message. So <laughs> anyway, just to close out here, we have a, a very ambitious schedule from now through the end of the year, including a one year anniversary show. So if you want to send us a special message, just record a voice memo on your phone and share it with us at unftrpod at gmail.com. Uh, we're also going to be sending special anniversary discounts to our native roasted coffee through Substack. So make sure to sign up for our essays at unftr.substack.com. And remember that it's always free. If you'd like to support this show, go to buymeacoffee.com slash unftr or click the buy me a coffee link at unftr.com. We're in the process of determining benefits for different subscription tiers that don't include content because, as we've said before, we always want our content to be free. So uh, keep checking back there to see how you can support us and what benefits will come from that. For those of you who have joined us from Pitchfork Economics, thank you for giving us a shot. Just please know that this episode, like 99 Set Up Top, is uh, somewhat of a departure for us. So check out the archive for uh, some of our timeless economic episodes. And we also have a playlist of said economic episodes on Spotify. Oh, there you go. So link that. If you listen to Spotify, uh, if that's your preferred app, uh, or even if you don't, you can go over there, download it, and you'll feel right at home. Thank you again to Nick Hanauer, David Goldstein, and the entire Pitchfork crew for returning the love to us this week. We're officially members of the Mutual Admiration Society. Book love. Check out anything by Jeremy Scahill. But in particular, in this episode, we've got Blackwater and uh, Dirty Wars. Really, really incredible books, uh, defining books uh, for me in my journey, for sure. I admire Jeremy Scahill greatly. I think he's one of the best foreign correspondents and, and reporters. And he actually came up under Amy Goodman over at Democracy Now. He was her intern. So uh, he is a is an Amy Goodman invention. Wow. Yeah. Unfucking the Republic is produced and engineered by Manny Faces Media. This one's for Big Mike Boyle from Westbury, New York. All original music is produced by Tom McGovern. The brains of the outfit and producer extraordinaire is 99. The show is hosted by Rick and distributed by Morty. Website is unftr.com. Substack is unftr.substack.com. And shop bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod for the books that inspire these episodes. See you next week.